As we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to read our passage this evening with me. It's Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And you can follow along in your copy of God's word or in your bulletin, and it'll be on the screens behind me as well. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we are so grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through the world around us that we get to observe, but most especially through the word, that we have access to the Bible where You've spoken to us in a completely authoritative, perfect and inerrant way. And that this book is a huge story of your love for us. And that this story demonstrates your great love for us, God. I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he's an instrument for your truth, God. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us ears to hear. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for being here in worship on this Easter Sunday with us. And if you're watching us online, thank you 
uh, for joining us as well. Every Sunday that we gather together in worship, we do so in recognition of the resurrection of Jesus. But on this day, especially, we remember the events of that weekend 2,000 years ago, uh, the crucifixion, the burial, and most importantly, the resurrection of Christ. The fact that the tomb was empty, that the grave could not hold him, that Jesus overcame death, and through all of that, that you and I have what the Bible calls a living hope. Uh, not just a hope that is based on some idea or a hope that is based on some teaching of some individual who claimed to have some kind of vision way back when, but a hope that is based on a real historical event of history. That event changed the course of human history. Even the most hardened atheist in a moment of brutal honesty will admit that no other individual in history has changed the course of world events like Jesus Christ. In fact, every time that you write a date, you acknowledge this fact. If you sign and date a form, or you sign and date a check, for those of you who still write checks, when you do that, you acknowledge the fact that Jesus has changed history more than anyone else. Today is April 9th, 2023 AD. AD is an abbreviation for the Latin phrase, Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. We gather here on this Easter Sunday morning, 2023 years after Jesus Christ was born. All of history is split right in two. Before Christ, B.C., and A.D. in the year of our Lord. But we gather here not just to acknowledge that Jesus Christ changed history, but we gather here because Jesus Christ changed me. And if you follow Christ, he changed you as well. In fact, if you follow Christ, you have that same dividing line in your life. You have before Christ, when you were lost and you were without hope, and you were a slave to sin, and then you have after Christ, where you receive forgiveness, where you now have hope, where you have the promise of eternal life, where you have freedom that is found in Christ. We celebrate this weekend, not just because Jesus Christ changed history, but because that event is still profoundly affecting lives today, including all of us who follow Christ. Now, here's what is, here's what is interesting. That what we celebrate this weekend, that was in the mind of God from the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they broke a relationship with God that they could not fix. In fact, none of us in this room can fix that. You cannot be good enough or religious enough to repair that relationship with God. And so from the very beginning, God had a redemptive plan to fix the broken relationship between him and man. Throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of this plan. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these pictures of God's redemptive plan. And today's passage is one of those major snapshots of God's plan seen in the Old Testament to redeem himself to mankind. 
If you're a regular at Northway, you know that we have been in a study on the life of Abraham. And this series began with the call of Abraham, where God came to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ came. God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave the land where you currently live. And I want you to go to this place that I will show you. And that command came with a promise that Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, that I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that through your descendants, I will bless the entire world. The only problem with this promise, this one little minor detail, was that Abraham had no son, that Abraham and Sarah were childless, and at this point, Abraham, when the promise was made, Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65 years old. Not exactly spring chickens. And yet God had said, I through you will create this great nation through your descendants. And even though they had no children, they believed the promise. There were times they doubted as the years went by and they had a promise that was not becoming reality. They doubted, they naturally doubted, but still they held on to this promise and held on to this promise. And then 25 years after the promise was made, finally it became reality. They had a son, they named the son Isaac. Finally, they had an heir. The promise had finally become reality. Isaac grew up. The years went by, became a teenager, perhaps even a young man into his early 20s. And then God comes to Abraham with what is one of the strangest passages in all of the Bible. Genesis 22 is the account of God coming to Abraham and telling Abraham to take his son and to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. In other words, take your son and murder your son, but do so under the umbrella of religious worship. Now, understand, in that day, that was common in the nations around Israel. It was very common for people who worshipped other gods to take their children and to sacrifice their children to one of their gods. Blood was considered to be an offering, and so the sacrifice of one's own child was the ultimate offering to a God. This was such a common practice of the nations around Israel that God had to say to Israel, you do not do this. I know that other nations practice this, but that is not the kind of worship I desire. I do not want you to sacrifice your children. In fact, we see this in Leviticus chapter 20, where God specifically says to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech, who is a God of the nations around Israel, is to be put to death. No one in Israel should do this. A native Israelite, or a foreigner who is living in Israel, that is not what I want you to do. Now, why, why would God have to give this command? I mean, I understand why God gave the other commands. I understand why God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
that can be a temptation. But sacrificing one's child? I mean, even when my children are really bad, <laughs> really bad, and I might want to ship them off to their grandparents for a while, but I've never actually thought about murdering them. I mean, why did God have to say, do not sacrifice your children in some kind of religious ceremony? Here's why for Israelites, the temptation came because the people who lived in the nations around them practiced this and they would say to the Israelites, look, you are not as devoted to your God as we are to our God. We love our God so much that we are even willing to sacrifice our own children. It was like this ancient religious peer pressure. The Israelites were tempted to sacrifice their children to show the same devotion as the nations around this, around them. And so God clearly said to them, do not do this. This is not the kind of worship that I desire. It is immoral to do this. You are not to sacrifice your children. And then we get to Genesis 22, and that's exactly what God orders Abraham to do. To sacrifice his own son as a burnt offering. A burnt offering was a specific kind of worship where an individual would take an animal, they would slay the animal, the blood would, would drain onto a wooden altar, and then that wooden altar was lit on fire and everything would be consumed by the fire, a burnt offering, and it was specifically done for the forgiveness of the sins of the person sacrificing the animal. The blood of the animal would be the atonement for their sin. They would receive forgiveness from God through the blood of this particular animal. And so God here commands Abraham to make a burnt offering to God, but instead of an animal, he was to use his own son Isaac for the sacrifice. In other words, the blood of his son Isaac was to pay the penalty for Abraham's sin. Abraham would receive forgiveness because of Isaac's sacrifice. Now, if you listened earlier as Stephen read, you know the end of the story. If you grew up in church and you read this story before, you know how it ends. God ultimately stops the hand of Abraham before he is able to thrust the knife into Isaac. And so as this story has traditionally been explained, it has gone something like this. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? It was to test the faith of Abraham. And Abraham passed the test. I mean, at the end of the test, Abraham is commended for his faith in God. He is commended for the fact that he, was, uh, that he was unwilling to withhold anything from God, that he loved and trusted God so much that he was even willing to sacrifice his own son. And God praises Abraham for this faith. And so if you grew up in church and you heard this story, 
This was the explanation that you heard. If you were in Sunday school or if you were in vacation Bible school and this story was read and you raised your hand and you said, why did God command Abraham to do this? This was the explanation given. It was to test Abraham's faith and Abraham passed the test. I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied with that answer. There's something about that answer that is just not enough for me. And, and in fact, if I took either one of my sons and I took one of them out and I placed my son on a wooden altar and I took a knife and I acted like I was going to kill my son and you heard about this, even if I didn't actually do it, you would call the police. And if I told you that God told me to do this, you'd call the men in white coats to come grab me and put me in one of those padded rooms. I mean, even if I didn't do it, you would say, that's, that's not good. There's something that's wrong about that. And so we get to a passage like this and we have to give an honest assessment. Why would God tell Abraham to do this? And in fact, for centuries, my guess is, that for centuries, the Israelites would tell their children this story. And they would get to the end of the story and their children would say, um, Dad, why did God tell Abraham to do this? Well, it was to test Abraham's faith. Dad, I sure hope God never tries to test your faith because I don't want to go through that. Why would God ask Abraham to do this. There has to be another reason. And I think that reason is buried within the statement that I just made. That for centuries and centuries and centuries, parents would tell this story to their children. From generation to generation to generation, this story was passed down always with a slight question mark at the end. Yes, God did this to test Abraham's faith, but it just doesn't seem to keep in line with the character of God. But it happened. It was a true account. This, this took place. And so the story was told from generation to generation to generation. And then one day, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ was placed on a Roman cross and he died on that cross. And this man claimed to be the son of God. And many Jews who stood around and witnessed this, they looked and said, there's no way. If he was truly the son of God, God would not allow his son to die in this way. But other Jews witnessed this event and they remembered this story of Abraham and Isaac. And for them, it clicked. And it made sense that that perhaps this was God's plan from the very beginning. And for them, they finally would have understood. They would have understood the real reason way back when, 2,000 years before Jesus came, that God told Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. That 2,000 years before Jesus came, that God told Abraham to do this, to paint a picture of exactly how he would fix the broken relationship between God and man. 
I want to go back to the story and see how all of this fits together. Go back to verse 2. Here's what God said. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This, by the way, is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. And it's used here to describe Abraham's emotion, Abraham's feeling toward his son Isaac. No surprise. That's the way a father naturally feels about his son. The surprise in this verse, the interesting part, we could even say the confusing part of this verse, is that God says to Abraham, take your only son, Isaac. Take your only son and sacrifice him. The reason it is confusing is because Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. Again, if you grew up in church and you've read stories about Abraham, you know that he had another son named Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was not the son of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He was the son of Abraham and one of Abraham's maidservants. So the argument could be made, well, God was referencing his only legitimate son. So I think there's more to the story than that. God here says, Abraham, take your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. The reason those words were used is because it parallels what, is a, what has become the most widely known verse from the New Testament. John 3.16, one that most of you know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now I get it. It is tempting for you to say, eh, that's just a coincidence. God's Abraham, your only son whom you love. Later, Jesus says, God's only son whom he loves. Yeah, I think it's just a coincidence, except that's not the only parallel in the passage. There's so much more. Look back at verse 2 again. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Why is this so significant? Because of all the places in Israel that God could have directed Abraham to go to, to sacrifice Isaac, he tells him to go to Moriah. And Moriah would later become the place where the temple of God was built. Moriah would later become the place where Jerusalem sat. In fact, we see this in 2 Chronicles 3. It says, And Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Now, Mount Moriah would later go by the name Mount Zion, the location of the temple, the location of the city of Jerusalem, and the location where Jesus himself was crucified just outside the walls of that city, where God directed Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him was the same place where Jesus Christ himself was sacrificed. Now, we have no way of knowing this for sure, but I just bet, 
I just bet that the place where Abraham took Isaac and bound him and placed him on an altar is the exact same place where that cross of Jesus Christ was placed into the ground. Because that would be just like God to do it that way. Now, again, I know there's a temptation to say, ah, I think it's all just coincidence. God's one and only son whom he loves. God's son whom he loves. Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. I think it's just coincidence, except there are even more parallels. Look back at verse four. Said on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. So Abraham says, I want you to go to this place, Moriah, on one of the mountains. I will direct you to. That is where you are to sacrifice Isaac. And they began to travel. And that journey just happens to take them three days to get there. It's interesting because that journey parallels the time that Jesus was in the tomb. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, on its own, not that big of a deal. Maybe just a coincidence. When you have one or two coincidences, ah, you can say just a coincidence. When you have three or four, you start to build a case that this perhaps was God's divine plan from the very beginning, seen in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Okay, again, look at verse 6. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the fire would have been a torch. Abraham carried the knife. Isaac carried the wood. But here's what I want you to note. That it doesn't just say that Isaac carried the wood. It says that Abraham placed the wood on Isaac. Meaning Isaac did not carry the wood like this. Rather, Abraham placed the wood on Isaac's shoulders. And he carried the wood for the sacrifice in this manner. Sounds very similar to another story, doesn't it? To a story of how Jesus carried the wood for his sacrifice. John records it this way, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. There are all these parallels. And as well, there are parts of this story that only make sense in light of the cross. So Isaac carries the wood. Abraham walks with the torch and the knife. Isaac then naturally asks his father this question. Dad, I've got the wood. You've got the fire. You've got the knife. We've got everything we need except for an animal. There's no animal to sacrifice. Dad, where is the animal? Notice how Abraham responds in verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, here is why this does not make sense. You get to the end of the story and God did not provide a lamb. Look at verse 13. 
It says, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So here's the question. Why did Abraham say God will provide a lamb, but then later God provided a ram? Was Abraham just mistaken? Did did he misspeak there? Or was this very intentional in his choice of words? Why specifically did Abraham use the word lamb, but at the end of the story, God provided a ram? Because this was not the end of the story. Somehow Abraham knew that this was not the end of the story, that this was pointing to another story, a story in which God would in fact provide a lamb to be sacrificed. It would be 20 centuries later when God would very much provide the sacrifice by sending his own son to be the sacrificial lamb for the burnt offering to atone for the sins of the world. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to as the Lamb of God. One of those references is found in the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, written by John, where John gives a vision of what he sees in heaven and writes this. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Finally, here's the last verse of this story. The last verse reads this way. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So go back to the story. They walk up to the mountain. There's the altar. Isaac is tied, is bound onto this wooden altar. And then the angel of God stops Abraham. The knife is never thrust into Isaac. Abraham is is quite happy about this fact. Isaac, I'm sure, is even more thrilled about this fact. And then all of a sudden, a ram appears in the thicket with its horns caught in the brush. And they take the ram and they sacrifice the ram. So the ram is the burnt offering instead of Isaac. And in response, Abraham calls that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, that is the phrase Jehovah Jireh. If you grew up in church, you've perhaps heard that before. Maybe you didn't know where it came from. It's here in this story. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But here's what is strange. Why did Abraham name that place the Lord will provide? You would have expected in response for Abraham to have named that place the Lord provided. 
I took my son. He commanded me to place my son on the altar. I had Isaac bound. He was strapped. I had the knife in the air. I was ready to bring it down. The angel of God stopped my arm from bringing it down and killing my son. And there in the thicket was a ram with its horns caught in the brush. Look, the Lord provided a sacrifice. Instead of sacrificing my son, the Lord provided a ram instead. But Isaac doesn't name that place the Lord provided. He named that place the Lord will provide. Why? Because somehow, in some way, Abraham understood that there was another story coming. That it wasn't just that the Lord provided in that moment, but there on that place that the Lord will provide, pointing to some future event. And you notice at the end of the verse that not only does Abraham name that place the Lord will provide, but at the end of the verse it says, and to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Meaning that for centuries, this story was told. From generation to generation to generation, this story was told. And they would get to the end of the story and they would say to their children, that is why we call that mountain, Mount Moriah, what we now call Mount Zion. That is why we call that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide because on that mountain, it will be provided. What will be provided? Not sure exactly, but it's something to do with the story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of a son and this burnt offering. And on that mountain, it will be provided. And century after century and generation after generation, that story was told. And this was the conclusion. On that mountain, it will be provided. And then 20 centuries after Abraham, after Abraham and Isaac, 2,000 years later, a man named Jesus came. And he claimed to be the son of God. And he did a pretty good job backing up that claim. He performed miracles. He walked on water. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He did a pretty good job proving that he was in fact the son of God. But then one day the son of God was taken and he was placed on a cross. And there that day he died on the cross. And what God stopped in the story of Abraham and Isaac, he allowed to happen in the story of Jesus. For on that day, God's one and only son, whom he loved, died on the cross. You see, there is this tension that is throughout the Old Testament. The tension is this. How can both the mercy of God and the justice of God be satisfied? You see, because of the justice of God, God cannot simply ignore our sin. Because he is perfectly holy, because he is without any stain or any sin at all, because of that fact, he cannot simply dismiss or overlook our sin. Uh, that would not be in line with the character of God. 
And at the same time, throughout the Old Testament, we see the mercy of God. That those he created, he desires to show mercy to his creation, even when we blow it, even when we rebel, even when we sin against him time and time again. And so you see this question mark hanging over the New Testament, I mean, over the Old Testament. How can the justice of God and the mercy of God, these two things that seem to contradict one another, how can they both be satisfied? And it is in the cross of Jesus Christ that we see the answer to that question. Because in the cross, the sacrifice is made. The offering is complete. Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sin. In that moment, the price for our sin is paid, but not by those who deserve to pay the price, but by the one who is without sin, the one who did not deserve it. He is the sacrifice. He is the burnt offering. It is in the cross that the story of Abraham and Isaac finally makes sense. And it is in the cross that our lives make sense. That the penalty was paid for our sin. That the price was paid for our rebellion against God. And in the cross of Christ, the justice of God is sacrificed, is satisfied, and the mercy of God is displayed. That is what we celebrate this Easter. The only question is if you have never received this gift of God, if you have never done that, then what are you waiting for? Because in the cross is where we find complete forgiveness and a relationship with God.